uh, delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Jacob Phillips uh, from St. Mary's University. <coughs> Jacob completed his bachelor's degree at Heathrow College and then did his doctoral studies MA and PhD at King's College London. Um, He's been at St. Mary's University in Twickenham since 2016 and currently directs the Institute of Theology and the Liberal Arts there. Um, he's the author of Human Subjectivity in the Theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, which was published in 2019 by TNT Clark. And um, I'm pleased to say that he's soon to have a, a book on John Henry Newman and the English Sensibility, also by TNT Clark, coming out next year. So he's going to talk to us today on criticizing Newman's apology. You're very welcome to Dylan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, <coughs> well, it's really good to be here. I'm very grateful to be here. Um, before I start, I'd like to talk very briefly about why I'm talking about criticizing Newman's apology. Um, as was mentioned, I've done work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, that work was particularly about self-reflection in Bonhoeffer and the limits on self-reflection, which in a very deeply Protestant thinker, there are very strict limits on the ability that one can reflect on oneself as belonging to Christ, which I found very interesting. Um, after that, or during that work, um, I was reading philosophy contemporary upon Herther, and immediately beforehand, and a lot of the philosophy on self-reflection, which I argued he drew on, um, could loosely be classed as autobiographical theory. So autobiography is a particular form of self-reflection recorded in text. And there's lots of philosophical dynamics that I found intriguing and haven't had a chance to look at again. I then did this work on Newman, which I'm going to talk about today. Um, I was really interested to see the tensions around Newman's apologia as an autobiographical piece of work, and to think at some point in the future as to why we could apply those theories to Newman's apologia um, to move things forward a bit, maybe. Um, but what I'm talking about today is why I think there's stuff to be said about criticising Newman's apologia, rather than doing that critical work itself um, as a second stage. So, to provide some orientation, I'm going to talk about three things. An introduction, a substance, where I'll talk about Newman in the Tractarian period, then uh, the mid-period of Newman's life, which I call quite specifically and deliberately the Second Spring, um, the period around the time of Newman's Second Spring sermon from 1845 on to about 1864. Um, I do that deliberately because I think it's a specific period in Newman's life which is different to other periods. Mm. I think it is a time of conversion, mm. rebirth, renewal, an eruption of grace. That's how he understands what's going on at the time. Um, <coughs> by doing that, I am preempting some of the debates I'm going to talk about shortly, because people tend to interpret Newman through the apologia, which presents a very, very smooth process of gradual development, where just he, there's the touch of a feather he falls into Rome um, to find eternal truth. And the metaphor he uses for that is uh, in the apologia is he talks about it being on his Anglican deathbed, which one of the people I'm going to talk about today says gives this sense of inevitability that he would end up in Rome, etc. Whereas in the writings he um, gave around the time, the metaphors he uses are much more about rebirth, renewal, and another spring, which is a miraculous spring. He's become a babe in arms again in the middle of his life, um, as he claimed was happening with the Catholic Church um, around 1850. So 
<coughs> I'm not using Second Spring just as a generic term for the 19th century Catholic revival. I'm using it for a specific reason in Newman's life. And then, unsurprisingly, I will finally get to the Apologia and maybe try to come a few things from there. So in the late 1850s and early 1860s, John Henry Newman's fortunes were at a particularly low ebb. Since being estranged from his beloved Oxford circle upon converting, his involvement in founding a Catholic university in Dublin had not quite gone according to plan. He'd been convicted of libel by Giovanni Achille, and his article on consulting the faithful in matters of doctrine had prompted a bishop to report him to Rome on a charge of suspected heresy. Had his life story ended here, he may have died a relatively obscure figure. As put by one commentator, Newman had become personally and religiously an isolated figure whose present life and past career interested few people and whose inner spirit was very close to having been broken by two churches. This nadir point in his life trajectory is often demonstrated <coughs> by quoting a diary entry from 1863, replete with full Newmanian pathos. Hopefully. <laughs> oh, how forlorn and dreary has been my course since I have been a Catholic. As Protestant, I felt my religion dreary, but not my life. But as a Catholic, my life dreary, but not my religion. <laughs> I'm trying not to say I know how he feels. <laughs> as is well known, however, Newman's fortunes were dramatically transformed in 1864 by the publication of a series of pamphlets later collated into the volume called the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. The pamphlets were his contributions to a controversy which he'd been provoked to enter when reading a passing remark by Charles Kingsley in a review of Froude's famously anti-Catholic History of England from Macmillan's magazine in January 1864. Kingsley wrote, Truth, for its own sake, had never been a virtue with the Roman clergy. <laughs> Father Newman informs us that it need not, and on the whole ought not to be, that cunning is the weapon which heaven has given to the saints, wherewith to withstand the brute male force of the wicked world which marries and is given in marriage. <laughs> so what's going on here? And it's very often cut off there in sort of little primers and new. But what's going, off, going on here is Kingsley is making a passing comment along the lines of Rome considering itself somehow above the truth in some way. Mm. Newman considering loyalty to Rome to be above the truth in some way. Um, and it's very interesting stuff which comes up again and again in lots of the quotes I'm going to give, although I don't really talk about it much directly. Um, this assumption in 19th century English, the English mainstream, if you like, that there was something a little bit less than manly about Catholicism, connected with celibacy particularly. Um, and marriage is this as the, the thing that marks out you know, mature manhood and taking on the responsibility of a male life. <coughs> Um, and that comes up again and again, as I say. I don't really thematise it in this paper, but I find it quite striking. It shows up in some of the quotes I'm going to give. Anyway, Newman wrote to the publishers of the review, the publishers of the review, complaining of a grave and gratuitous slander. And having been forwarded the letter, Kingsley's lacklustre response invoked a fiery stream of correspondence, climaxing with Kingsley's writing of a full-scale account of Newman's allegedly lifelong dishonesty. Kingsley worked through Newman's writings and sermons to show, he claimed, that for Newman, truth has never been a virtue, and nor, in Newman's mind, need it be. Between April and July of that year, Newman wrote and published the series of pamphlets defending himself against Kingsley's allegations by telling his life story. 
and those later pamphlets were revised and reordered for the second edition of the Apologia in 1865, and it's this edition which has become definitive. There's no doubt that Kingsley's attempt to destroy Newman's reputation roundly failed. The Apologia has almost unanimously been interpreted as a total victory. As William Oddie writes, everyone agreed that Kingsley's defeat had been crushing. Owen Chadwick states that the Apologia even altered the subconscious portrait of a Roman Catholic priest in the minds of many educated Britons as people sinister, sly and underhand. Indeed, Cardinal Manning preached at Newman's funeral in 1890 and spoke about the fact that, quote, the public voice of England should for once unite in love and veneration for one who had committed the hitherto unpardonable sin in England, which is the rejection of the Tudor settlement. There are good grounds to suggest it was Newman's apologia that had actually enabled all this to happen. Manning says... You pointed at the back of the room. Oh, yeah. Oh, you did tell me that. <laughs> Manning says, the expression of heartfelt English sentiment to a good Roman Catholic would have been impossible a quarter of a century ago. If you track back 25 years from this funeral homily, you land in the exact year the second edition of those pamphlets was published, 1865. Moreover, that edition of the Apologia remained the key interpretive lens for understanding Newman's life from then on. It's this book which offers us that much-admired late Victorian sage and man of letters known to the popular mind. The Apologia thus set the rules and conditions for Newman's historical <coughs> interpretation and judgment. As such, generally, few engage in criticising Newman's Apologia. There is a small cluster of exceptions, however. Frank Turner is probably the most well-known. He criticises the book, firstly, on the ground that Newman's self-betrayal as a victim, wounded by careless allegation, is a bit rich, considering how the young Newman himself had fired off <coughs> one polemic after another, in which he would often be callously stereotyping his opponents. Secondly, he says the account lacked proper inquiry by Newman into the circumstances and context of his life, saying he quite carefully and deliberately did not ask to be judged according to a dispassionate investigation of the events and documents supposedly under scrutiny. Thirdly, he accuses Newman of overlaying or superimposing a smooth, linear structure on his <coughs> life trajectory, when in reality that trajectory was often muddled, confused, prone to dead ends and painful changes of heart. All this is lost, says Turner, in, quote, a powerful seductive narrative which portrays Newman's Catholic faith and personality as emerging from a Protestant chrysalis. Indeed, the rationale as to why Newman is alleged to have presented things in these ways can be easily deduced. As someone who had dramatically changed course throughout his life, an uncharitable observer might expect to see a litany of inconsistencies in Newman's corpus as his thought developed and changed. <coughs> the volume of conflicting positions would leave him vulnerable to having seemed to have played fast and loose with different commitments, and maybe even to having been duplicitous at certain points most obviously in his very late Anglican years, when some had accused him of having secretly been conspiring with Rome. Maintaining that truth is a virtue against Kingsley, and that it should always be such, could thus be difficult, considering the complexity of his life trajectory. By portraying that trajectory as a gradually developing lifelong yearning for truth, 
which unexpectedly found its fulfilment in Rome, by contrast, would enable him to completely rebuke Kingsley. Turner criticises Newman's apologia to challenge the fact that Newman's reception has relied upon the book, often in the most uncritical fashion. The reaction to Turner's book would suggest, however, that Turner himself had committed something like what Manning called the hitherto unpardonable sin, this time criticising the apologia. Most famous among these is Ian Carr, who wrote a ferocious review of Turner's book in an edition of the TLS in 2002. The matter quickly escalated the split between two opposing camps, Turner arguing for a greater attentiveness to standards of historical criticism in reading Newman, and Carr for what might be termed a more hagiographical approach, which, like Newman's own text, operates within the dynamics of Newman's own writing, but this time defending the apologia itself against criticism. And it does get a little bit culture warsy uh, insofar as Turner um, discusses, uh, <coughs> the phrase he uses is latent homoerotic yearnings in some of Newman's letters. Um, Ian Carr um, <coughs> takes issue with, with this. Um, things of a similar nature have been attached to Newman's life in his own lifetime and beyond, and this is why that, that comment about brute male force, etc., is quite interesting. Um, but also this connection with a, a, a hagiographical reading of Newman. Um, to show how far that's gone, to give an example, um, with Ian Carr, is that I was at a meal where he was presented with a festschrift a few weeks ago, in which in the art of dinner speeches it was relayed that he had spoken about Newman on EWTN, and the lady, a lady watching that interview decided to pray for Newman's intercession, and that was the miracle that enabled him to become a saint. So Ian Carr's direct involvement in Newman's canonization is being talked about. So when I say hagiography, it's not just about Newman interpretation, it's about historical events which are now becoming um, part of the legend. Now I'm drawing attention to this controversy because in those backs and forths on the merits or demerits of criticising Newman's apologia, both sides still assume at least one thing in common, that Kingsley was entirely unjustified to have written what he did. Even Turner makes Kingsley's wrongfulness a reliable element of the apologia writing that, because Kingsley had been unfair, it became assumed that everyone else who was criticised Newman had been similarly unfair. I want to visit the question of whether Kingsley himself could perhaps be dealt with a little more charitably. This is not to say I think Newman was a liar, nor, heaven forbid, that truth is not a virtue for the Roman clergy, but I want to ask if it might be at least partially understandable that Kingsley got things so wrong. This in turn presents a second more sensitive concern, which touches on the historical criticism versus hagiographical tension, surrounding how Newman may have presented things in such a way so as to make Kingsley's accusation seem as incomprehensible as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm now moving to section two, um, where I'm going to talk about the chapter. So very briefly, by way of background, my interest in this question arose while working on the interrelation of a received sense of Englishness current in Newman's day. Um, sorry, the interrelation of this Englishness with the substance of his theology itself, uh, which will be available from all good bookstores in 2023, <laughs> um, John Henry Newman and the English Sensibility. Now this book centres on three recurring tropes or motifs of a supposed English sensibility around the middle of the 19th century, namely an instinct for compromise, an affection for reserve, and a deeply empirical and practical orientation to life. 
The first of these, compromise, is central for entering the discussion around criticising Newman's apologia. In very brief terms, David Simpson writes that the restoration of 1660 not only brought with it a visible increase in the rhetoric of national identity, but that this rhetoric assumed that being English involved a commitment to common sense, an ethic of compromises, and a respect for special circumstances rather than adherence to general rules. A litany of disclaimers is required here, which I don't have time to give, but they're all in chapter two of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and they centre on three main issues. Why are we talking about Britishness, not Englishness, is one. Um, and the literature in cultural studies and um, literary th liter uh, English literature from the period in question tends to fall in one of two camps. And there's more on the English side, I think, in what I've read. And I side with the, the English side for reasons which I'm happy to discuss in Q&A. Another issue is the idea of there being a, a, a cultural sensibility in the singular um, and how this could be, um, or has been, certainly later in the 19th century, um, something used for manipulation and control and propaganda. Um, and in reality, there must be some kind of plural of sensibilities and regional differences are so different, etc., etc. Um, and I respond to that by saying I'm, I'm dealing with a received sense of there being a particular set of attributes that belong to English people um, in the period from when Englishness was defined, uh, entered the Oxford Dictionary in 1801 um, up to about the 1860s and onward. Whether that received sense is accurate is a completely different matter, and the disclaimers go into that. There's also the most sensitive area here, which is around race and imperialism. Um, and there's a very long section on that in chapter two. But suffice to say, um, with, with lots of caveats that have to be given from Newman's own writing and his use of the word Saxon, we're not talking about something to do with ethnicity here. We're talking with a received sense of a particular set of habitual responses, um, which is different for the English than it was for the French, broadly, and the Italians, and that these understandings of, of identity were very current at Newman's time. Mm. Wrongly or rightly, they were there. That's all I'm saying. Now, a supposed ethic of compromises, of course, intensified significantly when England was later defined in contrast to revolutionary France. Here it develops into a commitment to seek civic harmony against dogmatism or ideology, a distaste for extremes, fanaticism, and division. It has its locus classicus in the intermingling of Protestant and Catholic elements in the Elizabethan settlement, obviously, along with the later combination of parliamentarian and monarchical government for English governors. As Edmund Burke wrote, quote, we compensate we reconcile, we balance. Hence, Englishness came to be conceived as involving the reconciling of extremes through compromise. Mm. Newman's engaging with compromise as an English motif has an early expression in his 1837 book from the Tractarian period, The Prophetical Office of the Church. Here he gives a lengthy treatment of an ecclesiological type from the Caroline Divines, the Via Media. This considers that extreme doctrinal positions pertain to both Geneva and Rome, to Calvinist and the Romanist theologies, Romanist, and that the distinctive role of the Church of England is to strike a balance or compromise position between these two. In the prophetical office, Newman is seeking to ground Tractarian impulses on rigorous theological analysis. He says the Church of England has a mission and her members should be on the watch for bringing out and carrying into effect this distinctive character i.e. the via media. 
Newman says Romanists and Protestants deliver forth solemn anathemas upon each other in the name of the Lord. But here, English theology can come in with its characteristic calmness and caution, withholding all absolute anathemas as errors of opinion. Looking forward to the apologia, please note Newman seems to hold that truth lies somewhere between two extremes. He writes, Virtue lies in a mean, in a point, almost invisible to the world, hard to find, acknowledged, but by the few. And his purpose in this book is to locate and describe this elusive centre. Now on the one hand, Newman holds that the mean point of truth being invisible to the world is to its advantage. He argues that the via media partakes of that indeterminateness, which is to a certain extent the characteristic of English theology. Leaving things indeterminate is said to be deeply fruitful. It means the English must hang upon the thought of Christ and not upon infallible informants. And thus they have to discern how to act in a way which seems on the whole most likely to please him. Not having explicit directives, he says, means to live in an unconscious devotion to the Lord. Whereas for the Roman, he says, each deed has its price. Every quarter of the promise is laid down and described. Unconscious devotion, by contrast, fosters what he calls the delicacy and generous simplicity of our obedience, however. Indeed, Newman goes so far as to say that when everything is determined, which means when in any moral issue that might come up there's something telling you what to do, Christian holiness loses its freshness, vigour and comeliness, being frozen, as it were, into certain attitudes which are not graceful except when they are unstudied. And I'm not an expert in Anglican theology, but I think the idea that moral probation without explicit directives um, is, a, is a theme in current Anglican theology, to the best of my knowledge. Um, I've definitely encountered it in the contemporary world. On the other hand, unfortunately, Newman's intentions result in some significant tensions in the book itself. He celebrates the indeterminateness of compromise, and yet the entire modus operandi of the book is, in his own words, words to advance a positive doctrine by which the via media might be rendered clear and determined. He uses the word determined. He explicitly seeks to describe the elusive mean point of truth in order to ground Tractarian impulses on theological analysis, but thus ends up determining the territory itself. Now, I put this um, in a slightly crude form, really, just to make the point, with this one example, which is Newman's discussion of using private judgment and faith. St. Newman knows I'm about to have a laugh. That's <laughs> prophetical office. He enunciates six steps to the via media of private judgment. These are as follows. Scripture, antiquity, and Catholicity cannot contradict each other. When the moral sense of the individual contradicts Scripture, we must follow Scripture. When the sense of Scripture, as interpreted by the reason of the individual, is contrary to the sense given to it by Catholic antiquity, we ought to side with the latter. That in important matters, we must follow antiquity over the present church, and vice versa in unimportant matters. That when the present church speaks contrary to our private notions and antiquity is silent, it is pious to sacrifice our own opinion to that of the church. And finally, if in spite of our efforts to agree with the church we still differ from it, antiquity being silent, we must avoid causing any disturbance, recollecting that the church, not individuals, has authority and controversies of faith. So what Newman 
previously argues is vital to Christian holiness, i.e. indeterminateness, by his own analysis in this example, only applies to the microscopically small space left for private judgment after six clearly delineated steps have been dutifully followed to establish that neither scripture or antiquity have spoken on the matter, that the matter is simply unimportant and significant, and our judgment is not contrary to the present church. This does not leave very much room for indeterminateness at all, and very little in the way of the spacious compromising between anathemas that he says leave the English free to trust their Christ in discerning what is to be done. I thought I'd got the right angle there. <laughs> so I'm now going to move on to the second spring, i.e. 1845-ish to 1863-ish. The Tractarian Newman threatens to be at odds with himself. His situation changes significantly <coughs> to return to the period immediately before and after his conversion in 1845. By Newman's own reckoning, his struggle with the Via Media is the decisive factor in leading him to convert. In his Difficulties of Anglicans from 1850, he highlights a realisation that came to him while translating the Treatise of St. Athanasius in 1841 as the supremely important moment above all others. The Volte Farce occurred when his translating led him to revisit the Arian controversy. The crucial realisation is preceded, we read, by a foreshadowing in the summer of 1839 when Newman undertook a reading of the Fathers focused on the Monophysite controversy. He says that at once and irrevocably, I found my faith in the tenableness of the fundamental principle of Anglicanism disappear, and a doubt of it implanted in my mind which was never eradicated. This fundamental principle is, of course, the Via Media. He goes on to say that in 1841, he clearly saw the same phenomenon that had startled me in the Monophysite controversy applied also to the area. This phenomenon is that the Via Media is not a novelty in ancient history, but has a series of prototypes. He thus describes three parties. Firstly, um, sorry, he describes three parties on the historical scene of the Aryan controversy, one of which is the prototype of the Via Media compromise position. Firstly, seeing communion of Rome, or the Orthodox. <coughs> Secondly, what he calls, uh, and apologies to any Protestants present, the pure Protestant, i.e. the heterodox Aryans. And thirdly, what he calls a cautious middle party, which sought to mediate between the first and second parties and avoid both extremes. So what Newman describes here is a moment of realising that between the orthodox position and the Aryan position, there was a via media, which is the semi-Aryans, who tried to partake of elements of both, to try and hold things together perhaps. Um, they believed that that was, that was the best way forward. And of course he describes this as absolutely terrifying to himself, but this idea that Anglicanism mediates between extremes, because one of those extremes he could not help but know was true. The key point is that Newman underwent a change in his understanding of truth in relation to dogma. We have seen that in the prophetical office, Newman approaches truth as if it were an Aristotelian virtue which lies between extremes. Aristotle himself does not have such a virtue in Nicomachean ethics, although he does have a virtue of truthfulness for which the extremes are either boastfulness or understatement of one's accomplishments. 
but truth, perhaps with a capital T, meaning the viewing of objective facts as generally, genuinely corresponding to states of affairs, can never be a virtue as a mean. Objective truth, he decides, is either true or false. There is no little path between 2 plus 2 equaling 5 or equaling 50. There's no deficiency apportioned to those who argue for 5, nor indeed an excess to those who argue for 50. The primary change in Newman's thinking is the recognition that a truth of dogma partakes of a similarly sharp binary between either truth or falsity, <clears throat> something he goes on to call dogmatic truth. Then the compromised formulae of Anglicanism are either true or false as well. There is no sanction for a via media between Trent and Wittenberg, Rome and Geneva, nor what Newman calls Romanism and popular Protestantism. Hence, Newman comes to hold that the via media is nothing else than Protestant, in the same way the semi-Arians are as heretical as the Arians. He now writes, quote, medium there is none, with reference to dogmatic truth, whereas previously he had written that truth as a virtue lies in me. The realization is central to an essay in the development of Christian doctrine, particularly in his second test of authenticity for a doctrinal development which is called in the first edition, Continuity of Principles. This is presented as a means by which, in seeking to discern the authenticity <coughs> of doctrinal development, that development is scrutinized as to whether or not the basic principles of Christian doctrine are continuous before and with the development itself. The example of continuity of principle Newman provides in that essay is that, quote, truth is one, unalterable, consistent, imperative, and saving. He also calls this continuous principle the dogmatic principle, which is that there is a truth and there is one truth. He says, with the old established paganism and Christianity in antiquity, two opinions encountered each other, and while both may be abstractly true, only one is a matter of life and death. This new position is shown by a character in Newman's post-conversion novel, Loss and Gain, called Mr. Vincent. Vincent questions those who think we might, quote, call evil good and good evil. The contradictions cannot both be real. When an affirmative is true, a negative is false. While Newman leaves us in little doubt as to the importance of the events of 1841 as the site of his realization, <coughs> it's common for secondary commentators to describe this event purely in terms of recognizing a pattern in history and then applying that to Anglicanism in his own day. When Newman writes that most oft-quoted statement, Rome was then where it is now, this does not mean just that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father before all ages and that Rome occupied the orthodox position, but that the orthodox position was grounded on a continuity of the dogmatic principle, which must then, by definition, apply to Rome in the 1840s, and indeed Newman would say for all time. If truth has a hard binary with falsehood, Rome is either true or false, both now and then, cannot have been true then and false now. Newman's anti-English polemics from his conversion period are often centred on this point. He sharply criticises a character in Loss and Gain
So this character in Lossengain uh, speaks of that quote, robust, masculine, noble independence of the English mind, which is like a tree rich in foliage, no sick sickenly denizen of the hothouse or helpless dependent of the garden wall. These, these are people that are praising the beer media. The sickenly denizen of the hothouse or the helpless dependent of the garden wall are those who must refer either to scripture or magisterium to know what to believe. Note also masculinity, chiming exactly with King's leading button of those who do not consider truth a virtue. Another character in the novel mentions a set of well-informed and excellent men who cannot appreciate Catholicism on the excuse that there are arguments on both sides. His interlocutor replies that this is not one set of men, it is the grievous deficiency of Englishmen. <laughs> Newman thus connects the via media with the ideal type of a freeborn Englishman. Now, I did toy with being gender inclusive here on freeborn Englishmen. Um, I decided against it, not because the option, not just because the options available didn't really work, uh, but also because it is an English man. For reasons I've talked about, there's this idea that being able to um, undertake one's own moral probation from a variety of sources and find the mean which is required for one in those circumstances um, is part of mature manhood. That's the implication here. Rather than being a sickly denizen of the hothouse or a helpless dependent of the garden wall who needs to ask the Pope what to do or read scripture in a very proof texting kind of way, um, applying it to the present world when it comes to it. So in difficulties, he claims the Anglican formularies are but the expression of national sentiment because the freeborn, self-dependent, animal mind of the Englishman is exemplified by the measure of free discretion they necessitate from their adherence. In the present position, which is another one of these polemical words, he asks why, in this intelligent nation and in this rational 19th century, we Catholics are so despised and hated by our countrymen, country people. He argues that this reflects English self-understanding of themselves as a free people, who are so free they dare to insist that Catholicism and Protestantism are both right and wrong, and that there are two truths. He makes frequent reference to what he calls the Englishman's maxim, which is Audi alterum partum, listen to both sides. Yet Newman points out, when it comes to Catholicism, this same noble and freeborn specimen has intractable prejudices and resolutely repudiates any view but that which is familiar to him from his childhood, <coughs> which appears Catholics as sly, sinister, underhand, and dishonest. He also seems to connect freeborn Englishmen <coughs> with the letters to rule Britannia, arguing that rather than being assured of never being slaves, the English are in fact the most helpless of slaves. The human strength in this world comes with being a captive of the truth. <coughs> so we've done making good progress. We've done Tractarian Newman, Second Spring, and I'm now finally getting to the Appalachia. <laughs> So let us turn to the apologia. <clears throat> Various notions of Englishness are at work in the Newman Kingsley correspondence that preceded the autobiographical pamphlets which have come to us as this book. Kingsley's original remark, of course, plays on the Guy Fawkes type stereotype of Catholics as dishonest and suspicious, orchestrated by a sinister priestly caste. There was also that sense that a free thinking, free born Englishman could never suffer the servility of the Catholic mind in its loyalty to the Pope, and that this servility is itself unmanly and infantile. 
good English society thus has that brute male force one never sees in a celibate priest. For marriage, for Kingsley, is the crown of mature manhood. Kingsley's review of Frew's book includes the claim that medieval Europe suffered deep demoralisation because the Pope of Rome had arrogated to himself the authority to define truth and falsehood by setting his seal to a bit of parchment, thus having authority even over objective truth. He claims that a generation after the Re Reformation, <coughs> having grown up and died with the Bible in their hands, Englishmen and Germans begin to understand what Frenchmen and Italians did not understand. <coughs> uh, with apologies to any French people or Italians here, this is Kingsley talking. <laughs> Namely, that they were to be judged by the everlasting laws of God. Now, throughout the literature on the Englishness from this period, um, the French are normally held up as the kind of caricature of everything questionable about these stereotypes of Catholics, um, but more generally often uh, Mediterranean nations as well. Kingsley attacks any Tractarian assumptions about the unbroken rectitude of the English Church before and after the Reformation as well. The heap of lies which is Catholicism, he writes, had been accumulating on these shores ever since the first monk dug the first heathen Anglo-Saxon out of his barrow. <laughs> so he wouldn't have visited Holy Island as some. Newman's second letter mocks Kingsley as, quote, an educated man breathing English air. That is, as someone from whom equanimity and liberality of thought is to be expected. Edmund Burke had, of course, defined manners as things which, quote, barbarise or refine us, saying they do so by an insensible operation, like that of the air we breathe. As he often does after converting, Newman uses compromise as a way to ask who the true Englishman really is, the one voicing an extreme accusation that ungrounded in fact, or the wrongly accused. Admittedly, Kingsley's original sweeping rebuke of all Roman clergy is tempered somewhat in the correspondence that followed, but he still maintains that there should be a strong distrust of certain Catholics who become proselytizing priests, like Newman, for they have turned round upon their mother church, I had almost said their mother country, contumely <coughs> and slander. This parenthesized qualification is a serious matter, actually, for polite Victorian society. He skirts as close as he can to an accusation of treason. The impassioned prose reaches something of a crescendo when Kingsley discusses some comments by Newman which praised certain religious sisters whose earnestness had led them to undertake self-inflicted stigmata. One can imagine Kingsley's hushed solemnity when he says that Newman's words will arouse in every English husband, father and brother the same feelings as aroused in me. These are words, he says, will haunt him as long as Englishmen know how to guard the women whom God loves. So let us turn to the apologia itself, particularly Newman's account of the transformative moment which led him to swim the Tiber. We've seen in the earlier account from difficulties, all is centered on his reading of the Arian controversy and the realization that the semi-Arians are a sort of prototype of the Via Media. But differently, the semi-Arians could be said to have considered truth as a virtue to Lionel and me as Newman himself had described in 1837. In the Apologia account, by contrast, he focuses on an article by Nicholas Wiseman, uh, Bishop Wiseman, on the Donatist controversy, and Augustine's maxim, Securas Judicat Orbis Terrarum, which I've used the translation there, the verdict of the world is conclusive. The Donatists were a local church, of course, at variance from the universal church, 
St. Augustine takes issue with them precisely for this local variance. Put very crudely, they cannot be adhering to truth because their position is not universal. Newman thus decides that universality necessitates that the theory of the via media, the very famous phrase often quoted, was absolutely pulverised. Because it was a local variation on that truth which he sees as one and unalterable by definition. This means that any local English variation to the August Terrarum must therefore be similarly untrue. This is one of the most famous passages of the Apologia, and indeed the whole corpus. Nemesis says the Via Media was absolutely pulverised, but the juncture at which this happens is different to that described in difficulties in 1850. The reasons why the Apologia presents things in this way, I suggest, arise at least in part from Newman's 1837 comment that truth as a virtue lies in a mean, and Kingsley's accusation that for Newman truth is not a virtue. To unpick this, I just need to look at the meaning of the words in question. In 1837, Newman describes the Via Media by saying virtue lies in a mean, in a point almost invisible to the world, acknowledged but by the few. This classically Aristotelian reference to virtue, of course, recalls the virtue of truthfulness, insofar as truth itself cannot be, um, truth itself cannot be a mean, but the human approximation to the truth can be, which is indicated by Newman's revised version of that text, which uses the word veracity rather than truth. He says veracity, like other virtues, lies in a mean. In occasions requiring politeness, for example, he says, <coughs> if the full truth of a matter being disclosed could cause harm. So it's necessary first to bear in mind a distinction in the semantics of the English word virtue. There are two applications at work here. It can mean virtue in the sense of the original arete of Aristotle, a habituated response on the mean between extremes, as in veracity or truthfulness, lying between overstatement and understatement, However, virtue can also mean a more generic advantage or benefit, something that's simply good. That there's virtue in eating well, or there's virtue in religion. It's in the second sense that Newman interprets Kingsley's truth for its own sake as a virtue, meaning the truth is always the good, there is virtue in truth, and vice and dishonesty. But Newman distinguishes this from something uh, as distinguishes this from virtue in the sense of arete, the Aristotelian word for virtue by saying there's a broad difference between a virtue considered in itself as a principle or rule, such as truth is always good for its own sake, and the application or limits of it in human conduct, such as those occasions of politeness mentioned above. Then truthfulness does lie between extremes, and its occurrence varies according to differing circumstances. This distinction um, underlies the criticisms of Newman's Apologia, which Turner makes most emphatically. Newman claims that his considering truth a good, the principle of dogma, was at the center of his conversion to evangelical Christianity as a teenager, his battle with liberalism as a Tractarian, and was to remain central for his life as a Catholic. So what Newman does is say, if truth is considered a generalized good, I haven't changed my mind throughout my life since I converted to Christianity, evangelical Christianity in 1816, and then again to Catholicism in 1845, because all the way through it, I believed in truth, because truth is a virtue. So he can say famously, what I held in 1816, I held in 1833, and I hold in 1864. By this he means that truth is, to quote the development essay, one unalterable, consistent imperative and saving. He believed that all the way through. Truth then remains a good, a virtue in the sense of Kingsley's original remark. And I suppose when I was looking at this um, and revisiting the Apologia, I was slightly concerned that it could appear a little disingenuous. 
Not only because, as I'll say shortly, there is these other ways in which Newman has used the word truth previously, but what are the limits on this? So if one were to say, for example, I as a lecturer in Catholic theology converted to Islam or became an atheist um, or went through some kind of radical change, could I just turn around and say, well, I haven't really changed my mind because I believed in truth. I just thought the truth was there was a God and now the truth is there isn't a God or that the Quran is more authoritative than the Holy Scripture. Mm. Where do you draw the line and say, well, everyone believes in truth? There seems to be something going on in the way Newman had made it so continuous all the way through that I began to wonder if Turner had a different point. But Turner rather pessimistically claims that Newman focused on Wiseman's article with that securest phrase in it for political reasons, because Wiseman was an influential bishop with whom he wanted to curry favour. But focusing on Wiseman's discussion of Augustine's securus maxim defends Newman against the accusation that truth is not a virtue, as in an Aristotelian virtue, although there is a sense in which he has said precisely this earlier. The 1850 account of his conversion could inadvertently lead in this direction, for in the prophetical office, Newman introduces the Via Media by saying, virtue lies in the mean, and later realises truth does not lie in the mean, but with the extreme party. Truth is then not actually a virtue. <coughs> Objective reality is not a rete, and this account obviously needed careful reworking. Newman makes clear he had not at any point asked Pilate's question, what is truth, but was rather asking, where is truth? The securist maxim entails that truth is to be found in a universal church and not in any local ecclesial community at variance with that church. The consistency of a continuity of principle is thus assured. There can be no doubt about truth being one and unalterable, and moreover, is precisely the oneness and unalterability of truth, which means, by definition, truth must reside with the universal church, and not in the district of North Africa, nor indeed in Canterbury. The quest for truth is thus presented as that which drives Newman's conversion to Rome, where it concludes. I'm going to try and work towards a conclusion now. <coughs> So I think it's reasonable to suggest that a fair reading of the text at least helps explain how Kingsley got things so wrong. There is a specific sense in which Newman does seem to say truth is not a virtue. It partly reflects the semantic fluidity, fluidity of the English language, which combined with an innate hostility to Catholicism among the English intelligentsia, led to a woefully inaccurate portrayal of Newman's integrity. There's a particular sense in which Newman does recount of the view that truth is a virtue in the prophetical office. Perhaps explaining why he adopts the common Roman term veracity as virtue in his edited reprint of the same book in 1877. In the Apologia, Newman needed to emphasise the continuity and organically developing trajectory of his thought, which Turner famously criticised criticised as wrongfully portraying his Catholic faith emerging from a Protestant Christmas. So this leaves unanswered the more sensitive question about how <coughs> veracity itself can and should be applied to Newman's text. In short, dare we undertake that unpardonable sin and be found to be criticising Newman's apologia after all. My own view is that the Turner-Carr argument would have been greatly aided by drawing on what might be termed autobiographical theory about the inherent dynamics and coordinates of autobiographical writing. Mm. I have in mind here Gadamer, of course, but also particularly Wilhelm Diltai, a contemporary of Newman's who writes at length about the ways in which significance is apportioned to one's life by the process of ongoing self-reflection. In short, 
from the vantage point of age, perceptions of a smooth developmental linearity do tend to become apparent for at least more well-adjusted characters. And Turner's unfair in using Newman's youthful polemics to show how confused and volatile things were at that time. Newman is not claiming to write about them as they occurred, but as he thinks they should be interpreted in the present. Apportioning primary significance to moments of one's life is retrospective, but also happening in present time. So it's by definition relatively fluid, flexible, reliable to change. Self-understanding is never completed during one's own life. Looking at the question of truth as I've here presented it, does present Newman's writing in a highly strategic way, or perhaps better, rhetorical? But where it differs from Turner et al. is in the motivations for Newman's strategizing or his use of his rhetorical skill. When provoked by circumstance, people reorder and adjust their understandings of what mattered, and when, and why. This is just being human. In recent years, moreover, <coughs> approaching autobiographical writing as falling on either side of a hard binary between fact and fiction has been intensely questioned. The author W.G. Sebald is perhaps to blame for this, but I have in mind particularly Karl Ove Knausgaard and also the writer Teju Cole. In a conversation between Alexander Hemon and Teju Cole, they each discuss how, in Hemon's native Bosnia, there are no words that are equivalent to fiction and non-fiction. The closest translation of non-fiction in Bosnia would be literally true stories. The point is that for Heman, narration cannot contain stable truth because it unfolds. Now, I don't want to go down the road of forsaking truth with a capital T. I'm not doing a Don Cupid reduct or anything. I just want to point out that <coughs> autobiographical writing is writing which is in itself part of an unfolding story. An autobiography is part of the unfolding itself. Yes, we might consider Newman sly and artful, but another of these interlocutors, Knausgaard, writes, memory is sly and artful. What is given to us to cherish is not always of our choosing. So contra Turner, no autobiographical text should set out to be classified as a genuinely dispassionate investigation of the events and documents in which one was involved. Any more than, to quote Cole, we might go around a museum looking for fictional or non-fictional paintings. So ultimately, I'd like to work from this to see how we might move beyond hagiography as this semi-pejorative term, which it certainly was during my undergraduate uh, training. Hagiography was used as a byword for writing <coughs> which is fictive or imaginary in an uncritical way. Our awareness of the great transformation of human lives takes place at precisely that juncture between objectivity and subjectivity, which partakes of both, but cannot be exclusively claimed by either. The cold fact-fiction fact binary cannot endure in the human struggle with God. When apportioning significance to moments of one's life in light of God's intentions, we are always somewhere, to apply Newman's own words, in a point almost invisible to the world, hard to find, and acknowledged but by a few. Take um, two or three minutes to stand up or talk to your neighbor or just close and think of the questions you want to ask.